What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another installment in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. Last week, we talked about Sharon Tate's arrival in Hollywood, her relationship with Jay Sebring, and the beginning of her romance with the man whom she left Sebring for, Roman Polanski. Today, we're going to trace the rest of Polanski and Tate's relationship, which spanned three years, several continents, and the making and release of two major hit movies, Valley of the Dolls and Rosemary's Baby. The Polanski marriage has been enshrined in myth as a golden romance cut tragically short, which it was. But it's also undeniably true that Tate's happiness was compromised during this period by Polanski's frequent affairs and her own struggles to earn respect as an actress in an industry which was both fueled by female beauty and also regularly dehumanized the beautiful women it employed. Join us, won't you, for the story of Sharon Tate's last years with Roman Polanski. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When last we left Roman and Sharon, they were in the midst of a blissful early flush of romance. Their sexual connection, according to Roman, was off the charts. Roman thought Sharon was good for him in that she gave him a sense of home, and he also believed that Sharon was becoming more of herself with him at her side. Both of them hoped the world would come to appreciate this new Sharon Tate through the film they had made together, The Fearless Vampire Killers. But Filmways, the production company which had Tate under contract and which had financed Fearless Vampire Killers, seemed determined to not release the movie at all. During post-production, they sent Polanski an endless stream of memos. While the film's distributor, MGM, freaked out over the movie's nudity, Filmwise's complaints sometimes seemed more arbitrary. 
Polanski thought Filmway chief Marty Ransahoff and his boys, ever overprotective of Sharon's image, were trying to suppress the film as a way of keeping Sharon under their control. When Polanski received a memo suggesting that he reshoot Sharon's nude bathtub scene because, quote, there appears to be an imperceptible mustache on Sharon. Roman wrote back, You will even be more alarmed to know that she's growing a pair of balls. Polanski had spent a year working on the film, but Filmways wouldn't give him a release date. Depressed, unsure of what to do next, and thoroughly disillusioned by his first experience working with an American studio, Polanski took a meeting with Paramount's Robert Evans, who snuck Polanski the galleys of a new novel by Ira Levin. Rosemary's Baby, Polanski said. What is this, some kind of soap opera? Then he read it, and he jumped at Robert Evans' offer to adapt it into a film. Polanski signed a three-picture contract with Paramount, which meant he and Sharon would need to find a permanent home in Los Angeles. Roman got to work on the script, and Sharon went house hunting, picking out an insanely expensive rented mansion in Santa Monica. Roman discussed Rosemary's Baby with Sharon while he was writing it, and their conversations would influence the final form of the film. Roman based the conception-slash-dream sequence in which Rosemary is raped by Satan on dreams he and Sharon had had, as well as their experiences using LSD, making this perhaps the most tangible example to that point of countercultural activity directly influencing a Hollywood film intended for mainstream audiences. A film that, unlike, say, a psychedelic exploitation film like The Trip, wasn't on its surface actually about the counterculture. Roman also thought Sharon would be perfect for the part of Rosemary, who was described in the novel as an all-American beauty. But he thought it would be tacky for him to suggest his babe girlfriend for the title role in his first all-American movie, so he waited for someone at Paramount to make the suggestion. And no one did. Tate was not on studio wish lists at the time. She was still proving herself. She'd shot three films, none of which had yet been released. Instead of Tate, Paramount wanted Polanski to cast Mia Farrow, who had already emerged as a major star and the TV soap paid in place, and was double famous for her marriage to Frank Sinatra. Wayfish Mia was not what Roman had in mind at first, but once he met her, he was excited to work with her, up to and past the point where she essentially chose the movie over her marriage, refusing to quit Rosemary's Baby before it was finished so that she could co-star with Sinatra in his movie The Detective, a standoff which resulted in Sinatra having his lawyer serve Pharaoh divorce papers on Polanski's set. As blissful as his relationship with Sharon could be, Roman had no intention of becoming a one-woman man, Polanski didn't necessarily want Sharon to know about his affairs with other women, but he didn't do much to hide them. He did feel that not only did Sharon know what she was getting into when she hooked up with him, but also that it was unnatural for a man to commit to any one woman. Pharaoh overheard Polanski talking to John Cassavetes on the set of Rosemary's Baby about how monogamy was an unrealistic concept because no man could ever remain attracted to any one woman for a lifetime. Cassavetes, always up for an argument with Roman Polanski, protested that after 15 years together, he found his own wife, Gina Rollins, more attractive than ever. 
According to Farrow, Polanski just looked at Cassavetes in bewilderment, like he couldn't imagine how that could be possible. While Polanski was making Rosemary's baby without her, Sharon was fighting for what she thought was the part that could finally show what she could do, as Jennifer in The Valley of the Dolls, the splashy film that Val Luden protege Mark Robson was directing based on Jacqueline Suzanne's blockbuster novel about the dissolution of women in Hollywood. Jennifer was not the biggest role in the piece, but it was certainly a tragic part. A gorgeous chorus girl who wants to be more, Jennifer is dismissed as a bimbo by everyone in a position to give her a break. Ultimately, she's coerced into becoming a softcore porn star in order to pay for her husband's medical care. Then, when she finally gets herself out of that, she's diagnosed with breast cancer. On the eve of a double mastectomy, Jennifer, after being forced to use her sexuality to make a living and then being shamed for it, decides that losing her perfect body is a worse fate than death. So she commits suicide. Sharon felt a connection to the character. She knew what it was like to be wanted only for the way she looked, to be made to feel like her only asset was her physical perfection, and that aside from that, she had nothing to offer. She also knew what it felt like to be taken advantage of because she was beautiful, to be made to feel like she was at once something more and less than human, and to be made to feel guilty about it. That's why she had agreed to let Roman photograph her nude for Playboy to promote fearless vampire killers. She figured that if her body was going to be exploited anyway, at least she could try to take charge of the exploitation and use the attention to advance her career. But by the time she shot Valley of the Dolls, Sharon's beauty was failing her in that it hadn't helped her to get to that next level as an actress, and it also hadn't helped her to maintain the undivided attention of the man she loved. Like Jennifer, the thing that made Sharon special wasn't able to make her happy. Eerily, Sharon would say that Jennifer was sympathetic because, quote, she doesn't mean anyone any harm, and yet terrible things keep happening to her. Terrible was also the word Sharon used to describe Don't Make Waves, the beach movie she had made with Tony Curtis, which became the first Sharon Tate film to actually get a theatrical release in the summer of 1967, amidst a swirl of publicity branding Sharon as Hollywood's hottest new starlet that had begun with her Playboy debut in March. The press and public didn't disagree with Sharon's assessment of Don't Make Waves. The other two films on Sharon's resume, Eye of the Devil and the Fearless Vampire Killers, were released that fall, and they didn't do much better. The version of Vampire Killers that MGM finally agreed to put out in November 1967 was virtually a different movie than the one Polanski had signed off on. Under Marty Ransohoff's supervision, it had been shorn of 20 minutes with no regards to narrative coherence, given a silly cartoon intro, and dubbed by non-accented American actors. Polanski publicly disowned the release version, and the movie flopped, doing nothing good for Sharon's career. Sharon's hopes weren't entirely dashed. She still had Valley of the Dolls. But then she saw Valley of the Dolls. 
The film's premiere was held on a cruise ship, which all of the film's stars were taking from Miami to Los Angeles, stopping in ports along the way to do interviews. The unveiling was a disaster. Valley of the Dolls inspired derisive giggles from the assembled press, and Tate and her fellow stars found themselves ducking and hiding from reporters on the cruise ship in hopes that they could get out of having to answer for a film that everyone involved with thought was a disaster. Valley of the Dolls has, of course, been reappraised over time. It's the epitome of unconscious camp, but for all of its faults and occasional silliness, it's fascinating to watch in part because it's so crude in the way it talks about the hopeless situation women find themselves in when they seek stardom of any kind, based on beauty or talent. Valley of the Dolls may not have been considered high art, but it made a lot of money. It was the sixth highest grossing movie released in 1967, right behind Bonnie and Clyde and the Dirty Dozen, and just ahead of the James Bond flick, You Only Live Twice. Sharon's work in it wasn't taken seriously. It was assumed that Sharon was just being herself in the movie, not bringing her personal experience to the creation of the character. But the film contributed to her notoriety. Like a lot of actresses today who seem to be everywhere before they've really been in anything, in early 1968, you might have known that Sharon Tate was famous, but you might not have had an idea exactly why. By 1968, Sharon and Roman had become a top couple within the international celebrity jet set. They lived at the Chateau Marmont for four months, then began shuttling between Roman's apartment in London and a house in Beverly Hills, sublet, from Patty Duke. In Los Angeles, they went to clubs and parties almost every night. Their social circle included old Hollywood stalwarts like Otto Preminger, of-the-moment stars like new couple Mia Farrow and Peter Sellers, and a lot of movie and music scene people who, through parentage or experience, bridged the two generations, including Warren Beatty, Jane and Peter Fonda, and Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen. As we've already discussed, Bergen often felt uncomfortably wedged between the establishment and the counterculture. Sharon was more eager to embrace the so-called hippie lifestyle, but part of her longed for tradition, too. The sexual revolution was happening, but in practice, that mostly seemed to mean that women were supposed to be on the pill and weren't supposed to have hang-ups, meaning they were supposed to accept what men wanted, often while sacrificing what they themselves wanted. Sharon wanted a real relationship with Roman. She wanted to nest and have a baby and be a real family. But Roman convinced her that this was at least impractical, if not impossible. In interviews, words that sounded like they came from Roman started coming out of Sharon's mouth. She openly condoned Blansky's playing around. This type of behavior is just part of the man, she'd say. Now I've begun to think that there's something wrong with a man who doesn't have the drive to want to go out and see another girl. Any man who lets his wife tie him down or take him to task for following his natural instincts is a very meek man. He wouldn't be the man for me. Maybe not, but those words also sort of sound like they're coming from a woman who has been told a lie so many times that she comes to believe it. Roman told Sharon often enough that what he did was simply what a man does, and that as a woman, 
she didn't deserve to ask for better. Maybe it wasn't as extreme as the Manson girls, who were brainwashed into believing that it was normal for them to have sex with whomever Charlie told them to have sex with, but maybe it wasn't all that different either. Still unable to gain momentum as an actress, Sharon decided that Marty Ransahoff was the problem. She asked to be released from her contract. She was going to retire, she said, and get married. Marty said, Okay, I'll let you out of your contract, but you really have to retire. Which meant the next thing Sharon had to work on was actually getting married. Roman was resistant for a long time, and Sharon was torn too. In a perfect world, she wanted to marry Roman Polanski, but did she want to be married to a guy who had never been faithful to her? No, but maybe marriage would change him. One night, over dinner, when Polanski said, I'm sure you'd like to get married. Sharon said that she did, and Polanski responded, We'll get married then. In perhaps a sign of things to come, a wedding was hastily arranged at the Playboy Club. Sharon wore a taffeta mini dress that she had designed herself. Roman was seriously hungover from his bachelor party the night before. Talking to reporters at the reception, Polanski dismissed reports that Sharon was going to quit acting. That night, they went to a Supremes concert. Their honeymoon started in the Swiss Alps, continued in Paris, where they were joined by Pharaoh and Sellers, and extended more or less until May 1968, when the city exploded with student protests, and the Cannes Film Festival, where Roman had been scheduled to be on the jury, was canceled amidst the unrest. Soon thereafter... Sharon and Roman returned to Los Angeles. Sharon and Roman's love was real, but their relationship wasn't perfect. Marriage hadn't changed Roman. One day, he was driving his Ferrari around L.A., and he pulled up behind a woman and yelled out, complimenting her beautiful arse. The woman turned around, and it was Roman's wife. This was actually amongst the tamer of Sharon's humiliations. Roman was an early adopter of the home video camera, and one day, Sharon and some friends found a pile of unmarked videotapes and decided to put them in the player and see what they were. One of the tapes was of Roman and a woman who was not Sharon in Sharon and Roman's bed. It wasn't just that Roman screwed around and Sharon nagged him about it. He was also highly critical of her. For one thing, he hated that she smoked, to the extent that she'd sneak off to have cigarettes and would beg anyone around to not tell Roman they had seen her smoke. When hanging out with his old buddies from Poland, Polanski would deliberately speak only Polish with them, excluding Sharon from the conversation. As Sharon's frustrations grew... She began seeking out a sounding board and shoulder to cry on in the form of Jay Sebring. Jay had never really gone away. He had never stopped wearing the high school ring Sharon had given him during their romance. Some people thought he was waiting around for Sharon to finally get tired of being taken advantage of by Polanski. While her husband was out at clubs on the Sunset Strip, usually picking up girls, Sharon, at heart a homebody, would sometimes be at home, often talking to Jay. Soon home was going to change. 
In February 1969, Sharon heard that Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen had suddenly moved out of their house on Cielo Drive. That house was Sharon's dream house, and she and Roman moved in in March 1969. Sharon's final film under contract to Marty Ransahoff, a Dean Martin spy spoof called The Wrecking Crew, which she had agreed to make before her marriage, was released in early 1969. It wasn't a huge hit, but Sharon's efforts at light comedy in it got positive reviews. She started to rethink her planned retirement. After all, to her husband, marriage wasn't a full-time commitment. Then Sharon was offered the female lead in a film slated to shoot in Italy called The Thirteen Chairs, which would co-star Orson Welles and Vittorio De Sica, director of the neorealist classic Bicycle Thieves. Sharon was still fluent in Italian from her teenage years in Verona, and Roman was going to be in Europe anyway preparing his next film, The Day of the Dolphin. So Sharon agreed to take the part. On March 23rd, her friend Shiro Katami came over to take some photos, and a funny little man came by the house, looking for Terry Melcher. The next day, Sharon flew to Rome. Just after agreeing to do the movie, Sharon found out she was pregnant. This wasn't planned. Roman had told her that because of his experiences as a child during World War II, he didn't want to bring kids into the world, and so Sharon had been using birth control. But nothing is foolproof. Sharon didn't tell Roman about the pregnancy until after she was already in Europe, already shooting the movie, because she was afraid that he'd be mad, that he'd try to get her to have an abortion. But apparently she did immediately tell Jay Sebring. Sharon and Roman needed someone to look after their house while they were away. Roman asked his friend, Wojciech Frykowski, if he'd do the honors. Wojciech Frykowski was one of Polanski's oldest friends from Poland, but he was also something of a hanger-on. Frykowski was dating Abigail Folger, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune and a committed social activist, and that gave Frykowski the wherewithal to not work a regular job. He did, however, do a lot of experimenting with drugs, meaning that in addition to the pot and acid and coke that a lot of people were doing, he was trying things that were new to the scene, and by some reports, he was looking for untapped corners of the market, which he could dominate as a distributor. While he and Abigail were staying on Cielo Drive in the spring of 1969, the house was visited by a lot of characters, even semi-strangers. Drug dealers, drug buddies, people who came over because they heard there were drugs. At the time, according to some sources, Frykowski was putting himself in position to become the first Los Angeles dealer of MDA, the predecessor of what today's kids call Molly. Meanwhile, by early summer, Sharon, very visibly pregnant and done shooting her movie, joined Roman in London. In his autobiography, Polanski would write that Sharon was lovelier to look at than ever. And yet, now that she was so noticeably and exuberantly pregnant, the love and tenderness I felt for her went hand in hand with a total inability to make love to her. I longed for the time when her body would return to normal. The cooling of her husband's lust for her made Sharon feel bad. 
but she still stuck around in London until she was too pregnant to not return home to Los Angeles, where they had planned for her to have the baby. In July, she booked passage on the QE2. Roman was supposed to come with her, but at the last minute, he said he had to stay behind to work. Roman drove her to the dock, and both began to cry as they said goodbye. Sharon was upset that her husband was risking missing the birth of their child. Roman was overcome with a premonition that something terrible was going to happen. As he wrote later, A grotesque thought flashed through my mind. You will never see her again. But he let Sharon get on the boat. Polanski would later write, While walking off the ship and back to the car, I told myself, snap out of it. Forget I'd ever had such a morbid feeling. Have a ball. See some girls. Roman did have to work in London. He was having trouble with the script he was writing, an adaptation of the novel The Day of the Dolphin. But also, as he himself admitted, he found his pregnant wife to be kind of a drag. He kept postponing his departure to Los Angeles. Still, he was worried enough to ask Frykowski to stay at his house and keep an eye on Sharon. Apparently unaware that Sharon had grown weary of Frykowski and his druggy scene. Back home, Sharon was miserable. Here she was, eight months pregnant, with her husband's shady friend in her house instead of her husband. And then she found out that her husband had recently had an affair with one of Sharon's closest friends, Mama's and the Papa's singer Michelle Phillips. Sharon knew Roman had lost interest in her sexually during her pregnancy, and she sensed that he still wasn't all that excited about fatherhood. But she still couldn't believe that he would be so callous as to blatantly disrespect her in this way at a time when she was so emotional and so defenseless. Her only source of comfort was Jay, who was by Sharon's side in Los Angeles during those weeks while she waited for Roman to come home and while she tried to figure out what to do about their marriage. She told friends that Roman was a bastard for leaving her all alone. She said she would have gone out of her mind if it wasn't for Jay. Jay and Sharon were so close that there was Hollywood gossip that Sharon's baby might be Jay's. Gossip which Kirk Douglas helped blow up into myth by repeating it in his autobiography. These rumors are unsubstantiated, but they're not the craziest things people said and continue to say about Sharon Tate. It seems like every couple of years, some guy comes forward to say that they had had an affair, often while she was pregnant. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a listener who said that a guy he knew claimed to have had sex at a party in 1969 with a pregnant woman who he later realized was Sharon Tate. Maybe that happened, although in the story I was sent, the pregnant woman was described as brunette, which Sharon Tate was not while she was pregnant. For decades, conspiracy theorists have suggested that Tate was way into witchcraft, an idea which seems to have been sparked initially by her movie Eye of the Devil, in which she played a witch, and in doing so, met Alex Sanders, a British occultist and Wiccan who was hired to consult on the accuracy of the depiction of witchcraft in the movie. Rumors persist to this day that Sanders indoctrinated Sharon into Wicca on the set of the film. In the 1980s, a man describing himself as an ex-witch went on the Oprah Winfrey show and tied Tate's supposed witchery to her murder. People say things about dead people all the time because they can, and conspiracy theories always flourish in the absence of certainty. 
In the case of the Manson murders, they flourish because the facts, even the indisputable ones, often seem senseless. These theories and stories help people make sense of things that don't make sense. There are so many reasons why the Manson murders could have happened. I have my own opinions and theories, and one thing that I keep coming back to is that there can't be rational explanations for everything that happens surrounding these events, because most of the people involved, due to a combination of drug use, ego, self-deception, brainwashing, and maybe plain insanity, weren't thinking rationally when they did what they did. And we will get to what they did next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had a special guest, Rom Bergman, played Roman Polanski. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Also at the website, you can find our forum, where you can submit ideas for future episodes. Next season, beginning in September, is going to be all listener requests. So submit your ideas at our forum now. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to us there, or in the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from The Secrets, and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Cause I